Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 14 to 16. Verse 14 to 16. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for this world. Thank you for your great love for us in giving your Son and in bringing light into this world, this dark world, Lord. And if you had not given light into this dark world, we all would have remained in darkness and ignorance and error, and we would have perished. Lord, thank you for your word that is truth. And I pray that this morning you would help us to understand this critical passage that is here in Galatians. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, and fill us with praise, Lord, as we grasp and understand what it is you have done for us in Christ, what the light and the truth is that we are to believe in. Lord, thank you for this special time to gather with the saints and to sing your praises, to, to be reminded together of the gospel, and to hear from you through the word. Thank you that we don't live our lives and uh, we don't uh, guide our lives based upon man's ideas and man's thoughts. And we don't hear from man, but from you, Lord. Glorify your name, we pray, through your word being preached. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're picking up where we left off last week at the incident at Antioch. You remember the incident at Antioch that we talked about? Um, the Jews and the Gentiles used to eat together. They used to have fellowship together. They used to be one at Antioch and walk in that oneness. And Peter and the other Jews and Barnabas were involved in that table fellowship and that declaration of the oneness between all believers in Christ, whether you're Jews and Gentiles, until some people came from Jerusalem to Antioch who didn't believe in that oneness, who didn't believe that just believing in Christ is what makes you right with God. They didn't believe that simply by believing a person is righteous and therefore any Gentile that believes is in and is one of God's people. They felt that, no, no, to be righteous, you have to do more than believe. You have to keep the law. And so you can't fellowship with the Gentiles because they're not really in. They're still unrighteous. They're still out. And Peter, wanting to accommodate these people who came from Jerusalem, actually feared them, not wanting to give them offense, and separated from them when they came. Paul rebukes Peter to his face in front of all the people there. Pretty a uh, shocking event. Can you imagine being there? Right in front of every, even today in the 21st century, that's kind of crazy to stand up in front of everyone and rebuke somebody, right? And much less an apostle rebuking an apostle. But that's what happened at Antioch. And look at verse 14. Paul says, When I saw that they were not walking straightly or straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So this is what Paul was concerned about. Peter's actions and the Jews' actions in separating from the Gentiles was compromising the gospel. It was compromising the truth of the gospel. That phrase, the truth of the gospel, is the, it's the second time Paul has actually mentioned it. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. This is in the meeting in Jerusalem. He says, We did not yield in subjection to them, these, these again, agitators, these men who believe that a man must keep the law to be saved. We did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So once again, his concern in verse 5, again, is the, is the truth of the gospel. That's the thing that's most important to Paul. Do you at all feel Paul's uh, intensity about that truth? Do you also believe that that truth is worth getting in people's faces about? Do you believe that that truth is, is worth making a public scene and disturbance to preserve this truth so that it remains with us? Because Paul sure did. So he mentions the truth of the gospel here. And really, since the beginning of the book of Galatians, 
we've seen that the gospel is really the focal point. The gospel is the issue. We talked about that in chapter 1. If anyone preaches another gospel, let them be accursed. You remember this? If anyone preaches another gospel to you, I'm a, I marvel that you're moving away from the gospel to another gospel, which isn't really another good news. It's not good news. It's a false gospel. And it leads you to destruction. So right from the beginning, the gospel has clear, clearly been the issue at Galatia, the issue in the meeting at Jerusalem, the issue in the incident at Antioch. But nowhere so far has Paul actually explained to us what the gospel is. Right? He's just said, look, it's not another gospel. There's only one gospel. I oppose those guys so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But we're wondering, what is the gospel? He hasn't said yet. He hasn't opened it up. He hasn't told us in the letter anyway so far. He hasn't explicitly told us what the gospel and the truth of the gospel is. What follows, however, in what we just read, verse 15 and 16 and onward, is Paul explaining what the truth of the gospel is. It's what follows. It's what we read this morning that distinguishes the true gospel from the false gospel. The verse that we read this morning, especially verse 16, if you just look at that, that, according to Paul, is the core essence of what the gospel is. And if we lose that, we've gone away from the gospel to something that is not a gospel at all. This is what makes it the gospel of God. Now, last week we looked at verse 14. Paul shows Peter that what he was doing by separating from the Gentiles was actually compromising the truth of the gospel. And he tells Peter in front of them all, you do not Gentilishly live, or sorry, you do not Jewishly live, you Gentilishly live. So why are you compelling the Gentiles to Judaize? That's what he tells him. He says, Peter, you don't get your life from being a Jew. You don't get your life from doing the Jewish thing. You are like a Gentile in how you are saved. And I mentioned last week that the word live here shouldn't be understood as how he lives, like his behavior in his in his day-by-day -day walk. He says, you don't behave like a Jew day-by-day. -day. I'm sure Peter did still uh, behave in many ways like a Jew and not like a Gentile. But he did not get his salvation, his life, his salvation from death and eternal life, as the Jews were attempting to get their life. And I pointed out last week some that, that in the context here, life is about salvation. Look at 2.19. I through the law died to the law so that I might live unto God. Look at chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. That no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous by faith will live. And the living there is not... The righteous by faith will behave. It's the righteous by faith will not die. The righteous by faith will survive. That's what the life is here. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. Is the law then against the contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based upon the law. And also in chapter 5, verse 25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The walk there is referring to our behavior, how we should live our lives day by day in our behavior. But the living by the Spirit, he's talking about our salvation. We are saved not by our own works, but by the power of God, which is the Spirit. We're saved by what God has done. And so he says, Paul, Peter, you, don't, you are not saved like a Jew. You are not saved like a Jew. You are not saved the way that they are attempting to be saved, which is by seeking to follow the law. Paul says the Jews sought after the righteousness of the law, but they didn't attain it. Peter, you aren't saved like a Jew. You're not saved by keeping the law. You're saved like Abraham was. And that might sound funny because you might say, well, wait, isn't, that, isn't he a Jew? But remember, Paul stresses repeatedly that Abraham was justified through faith being uncircumcised before the law of Moses ever came, before he ever did any... Uh, there was no Sinaitic law. There was no Sinaitic covenant. There was no circumcision when he was justified. He was justified as a Gentile, essentially. Peter, you aren't saved like a Jew. You are saved like Abraham, as Paul will argue, uncircumcised by faith alone. You are saved like a Gentile who is without the law, without any personal righteousness or holiness, as an empty-handed sinner, you were saved. And so 
Why are you compelling the Gentiles? Why are you putting a yoke upon them that they have to follow in order to be saved when you aren't even saved that way? What follows from verse 14 is an explanation and unpacking of this Gentilishly and Jewishly way of living. So verse 14 is unpacked in verse 15 and 16. Notice in verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles nevertheless. So he's unpacking what he just said in verse 14. In verse 15, Paul expresses the common sentiment in his day that the Jews were not sinners by nature, like the Gentiles. And there's some slight sarcasm there in that verse. He's going along with the sentiment of his day. He's using the language that people used in those days to make a, a point. And he's going to say, look, granted what everyone says, look how you are justified. You're not a sinner like the Gentiles. You were born a Jew. You've got to remember that Jews and Gentiles are born differently. One is born in the covenant and one is born outside of the covenant. One is born with all the advantages of being in the covenant and one is born without those advantages. The Bible says that the Jews are a holy people, a chosen people. They have the law. They have the instruction from God. They have light, whereas the rest of the world is in darkness. They have what they, th what they believed was guidance from God. And most of all, they believed God was with them from birth. And so they are different than the Gentiles. I'm a Jew. I've got all these advantages. I've got God. I've got hope. I've got light. I've got guidance. I've got instruction. I'm holy. But these Gentiles, they're unholy. And they've got none of those things. Jews saw Gentiles as sinners, hopeless. And Paul says in verse 16, even though he goes along sarcastically with in verse 15, the common sentiment of his day. Here's his point in verse 16. We aren't sinners among the Gentiles, right? Like you guys all say. We are different than they are. But look at verse 16. Nevertheless, that being the case, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Say what you will about Jews and Gentiles. Peter, we know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. And he says, even we, in verse 16, meaning even we holy Jews, even we Jews who are born under the covenant, even we Jews who are born the chosen people, even we Jews who had God from our birth, even we Jews who had it all going for us and better than the Gentiles, even we have believed in Christ to be justified through faith and not by the works of the law. Paul stresses here how we are justified. And it's the same for Jews and Gentiles, no matter how you think they are born differently. Some people think the point here uh, of Paul's saying, some commentators as they, as they interpret Galatians 2, 15 and 16, they think the whole point of this passage is that Paul is saying that Gentiles are able to come in to Israel. That that was the big problem, that Christians, Christian Jews in the first century didn't realize that Gentiles were allowed to come in. But that's absolutely false. Christian Jews in the first century knew that Jesus had commanded the saints to go and preach into all the world and to bring them in. So it, you'll notice here that it is not a matter of whether the Gentiles are allowed to come into Israel, whether Gentiles are allowed to be Jews. The point here in verse 16 is focused on Jews also are not justified by the law. The focus isn't on what can happen with the Gentiles. It's Remember, we are Jews, Peter, and we are not justified by the law. The focus is on how Peter and Paul and the other Jews are justified through faith. So it's not that the Gentiles can come in, nor is it even how the Gentiles can come in, but how all can come in and be saved. That's what's at stake here in this passage. Douglas Moo says, Paul is not arguing that Gentiles should be included with the Jews in the people of God. He is arguing, rather, that Jews should be included with Gentiles in the mass of ordinary humanity. Interesting, huh? <laughs> so Paul's point is, hey, no matter how different you think you are, Jews, we're actually in the same boat as the Gentiles. We're sinners too, and we need salvation. We're like everybody else. This is fundamental to Christianity, brothers and sisters. This is fundamental to the gospel, that we realize that we are not different than anyone else. We are like everyone else. It's the opposite of the Pharisee in Jesus' story when the Pharisee went to the temple 
He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That's a good Jewish prayer, <laughs> you see. God, thank you that I'm different. Thank you that I'm holy. Thank you that I've got instruction. and I'm, I'm different. I'm not living like the heathen. Thank you that I'm a good person. I'm like all those bad people out there. He's thanking God because he acknowledges as a Jew that the reason why he's different is because of God's election of his nation. Paul here is saying, actually, we Jews also, even we, are not better or different or holy or have an advantage here over the Gentiles when it comes to justification. Even we need to be justified through Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one is going to be justified. We're all the same. Do you believe that you are better than other people? It's, I mean, it sounds bad to say that we are, right? But it's more common than we think. That, that Probably most people in this world think they are better than other people. And they think other people, they are the ones who, who uh, need to get straight, you know, straightened out. But I'm a good person. I'm okay. And I'm, I'm going to be saved because I'm a pretty good guy. But not Hitlers and not people who follow in his trains or those prostitutes or those adulterers or those drug addicts. Those guys, I'm better than them. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ. Think about our own just cultural differences. I mean, probably most of us here are respectable American citizens, right? Not doing drugs, not going out and being adulterers. We, we can even take this and apply it to ourselves and say, yeah, yeah, we look different, don't we? we we're the Sunday morning folk. You know, we're the people that, that dress nice and abide by all the speed limits and things like that. Not like those, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. Not like those drug cartels and other nations and things. We're better. But we as, we as Christians would say, but you know what? Even we have believed in Christ that we might be justified through faith and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one's going to be justified. We're not better than those people. We're not going to make it in the judgment of God because we're better than them. We're not. Even we respectable American citizens have believed in Christ that we might be justified through faith in Christ. That's what the Christians say. That's right. I'm it's, it applies to the Canadians as well. We, need, we all need salvation by God's grace. Now verse 16 introduces some major key words found in the rest of the letter. For the very first time, actually, in Galatians, we're introduced to these key words, and they are, then after verse 16, they explode. So we're going to find them all over the letter of Galatians after this, and this is our first encounter with these major key words. And this shows that the rest of this letter is really about verse 16. So if we misunderstand verse 16, we've really misunderstood the book of Galatians altogether. John Calvin says about verse 16, in this single proposition, nearly the whole controversy of Galatians is embodied. Luther wrote over 7,000 words just on this one verse in his commentary on Galatians. And Douglas Moo says that, quote, one of, this is one of the most important verses in the, in the letters of Paul. So verse 16 is one of the most important verses in the letters of Paul. And it's greatly debated and disputed by scholars who want to take away from the gospel just like in the first century, there's agitators who don't like the gospel of grace, who don't like the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. And these scholars come to verse 16 and have to do something with it, and so they attack it. And so this is one of the most important verses in the letters of Paul. How we understand this is going to affect how we understand other similar statements in the Bible. So the rest of this sermon this morning is going to be on this verse 16. We're going to look at these three important Phrases that are introduced here, these major keywords. This is the foundation of Proverbs 17. This is one of the most important verses on justification. 17.15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So if you justify the wicked, meaning if you know someone's wrong, if you know someone is guilty, and you justify them and you say they're innocent, that is an abomination to the Lord. Right? And I think we all know that. There's many cases I'm sure we could bring up in our own courts of law that 
we felt like someone got off the hook, right? We knew they were guilty, but there must have been a bribe involved or something because we let him go. You're not to justify the wicked. That is an abomination to the Lord. You're not to justify the wicked. Obviously, that shows that justification doesn't mean you're making them righteous. Otherwise, justifying the wicked would be a good thing. Yeah, turn the wicked into good people, please. But here, it's a court word. And you're not to condemn the righteous. If you know someone is righteous, you're not to say that they're guilty. Isaiah 5, verse 23 shows us how Israel disobeyed this commandment in their history. Isaiah 5.23 This is the complaint of God through the prophet against Israel. You justify the wicked for a bribe and you take away the rights of the one who are in the right. He's talking to the, the judges. You're perverting justice in what you're doing. And Isaiah 43, verse 26. Now we come to the point. Because here's the point. This is what the word justification means. But the real issue is how are we justified before God? Because it's ultimately not with human courts uh, that we have to do, is it? It's ultimately not with a, with a judgment between one another. It doesn't matter really what I say. Ultimately, it matters what God says. It doesn't matter if human beings think I'm righteous. What matters is whether God thinks I'm righteous or not. In Isaiah 43, verse 26, God calls people to the courtroom. Put me in remembrance and let us argue our case together. God has a sense of humor. He doesn't forget anything, right? He's saying, remind me of your goodness again. I, 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 you want to make a case for your goodness, right? You want to declare yourself to be righteous before me. Well, come, let's gather. Let's make, let's have a court. Let's have, let's, let's have a case. And you present your case and remind me of what I forgot. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may prove that you're in the right. See, God speaks to all of us and he says, oh, do you want to proclaim your own goodness? Okay, let, remind me of what I got wrong when I declared you were unrighteous. It's with God that we ultimately have to do. The last verse we're going to look at in the Old Testament is from the Psalms. Psalm 143. And we go here because Paul the Apostle alludes to this verse in Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2.16 alludes to Psalm 143, verse 2. And here is a very important verse about justification in God. Isaiah, uh, Psalm 143, verse 2. And this is David speaking truth. Psalm 143, verse 2. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living will be justified or is righteous. You see here, now God, he says, don't, don't bring judgment upon me because I know that if you evaluate my life and anyone's life, we're going to be found to be guilty and unrighteous. And this is what Paul alludes to. Everett F. Harrison defines justification with God as this. To be justified means to be declared and considered righteous in God's eyes. To be vindicated of any charge of sin incident to failure to keep God's holy law. So if you are justified before God, which is the justification that Paul's talking about in Galatians 2.16, it's our justification before God, whether he considers us to be righteous or not. You would have to be declared by God to be righteous and vindicated from any charge of sin of violating God's holy law. And as David says here, there is no one who will be justified in the eyes of God. No one will be found to be free. Judgment with sinners, we would be lost. Therefore, we're thankful for his patience and for the gospel, because justification is the gospel's great mystery. 
Justification is the gospel's great gift towards sinners. And we're thankful that God hasn't immediately entered into judgment with us, but that he's given us Christ and given us good news that we can be justified. This is what Galatians 2.16 is all about. Galatians 2.16 does allude to Psalm 143, which says no one will be justified by the works of the law, but it tells us that there is a way for us to be justified. Galatians 2.16 shows us we can be justified through Christ. There is a way. That's the good news. That's the truth of the gospel. And friends, if you take that away, and you say, oh, I, I believe in Jesus, and I believe in the gospel, I don't understand this justification thing, but I think Jesus is a good teacher. He'll tell you how to be a good person. He'll tell you how to be nice to your neighbor. He'll tell you about heaven. You have completely taken away the gospel. There is no gospel. There is no good news without justification through Christ. And that's Paul's point here. He's defending the gospel by standing up to Peter and saying, you weren't justified by the works of the law. Now let's look at Galatians 2.16 again. The next major phrase here that will appear in the book of Galatians afterwards is this phrase, the works of the law. In Galatians 2.16, there are two methods of justification presented. And really, there are only two just ways to be justified in this world, at least two methods, hypothetically. One avails and one does not. One method justifies and one does not. There are only two. Paul tells us in Galatians 2.16 what method does not justify. He tells us how we are not going to be justified before God. And he repeats it for emphasis. He says it twice. He says, no man will be justified by the works of the law. Now what does this phrase mean, the works of the law? Now in my reading of the commentaries, it's clear to me that, that scholars across the spectrum, conservative or liberal, whatever denomination, are in fact agreed that the phrase, the works of the law, simply means doing what the law requires. That's all the phrase, the works of the law, means. No one is justified by the works of the law, meaning no one is justified by doing the things that the law says you should do or need to do. No one is justified by doing the, what the law requires. That's not the controversial point. The real controversial point out there is what does the law require? And there's an age-old conflict here regarding this verse and this concept of the works of the law. Roman Catholicism and Mormonism, and more recently, the new perspective on Paul, if you've heard of it, all of them argue that what Paul means here in Galatians 2.16, he says, no one is justified by the works of the law. What Paul means here is that no one is justified by the works of the law meaning by the ceremonial commandments in the law. They define the works of the law as sacrifices, circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, kosher uh, commandments. And so they define this phrase, yeah, it is, Paul's saying we're not justified by what the law requires, but what he's meaning here is limited to the, the ceremonial commandments. And therefore, Roman Catholicism and Mormonism and the New Perspective have no problem saying that people are not justified by the works of the law. However, they still must do good and be good in order to be saved. How else can they, if you want to hold on to the idea that people pass the judgment day by being good in and of themselves, you have to somehow deal with these verses, right? And they deal with them by limiting the concept of the works of law to the ceremonial commandments. Do you understand that, that argument? That is the classic evasion of the gospel, brothers and sisters. That's the age-old classic evasion of what Paul is saying. Yeah, 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 Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law. What we mean by that is he fulfilled the ceremonial stuff. We don't have to do ceremonial stuff anymore. Praise God, we're not justified by circumcision anymore and things like that. But don't tell me that we don't have to do good to keep the commandments, the moral commandments. God's going to judge this world based upon how moral we've been. 
And if we haven't been moral, we're not going to pass. So they see the problem here as what kind of works we're doing, not work itself. You see? They're saying, Paul is saying we're not justified by this kind of work. He's not saying we're not justified by works in general. It's the kind of work that Paul's arguing against, not works totally. The reformers in the 16th century and evangelical Christians today stand boldly for what Paul is boldly saying here. That a man is not justified by works at all. Not just ceremonial works of the law, but the moral works of the law also. But through faith only in Jesus Christ. And I'd like to just have you stop and think about this for a moment. It really doesn't take a rocket scientist to see the falsehood of that evasion that I just described. Besides it being exegetically wrong, and by that I mean, besides it being just scripturally wrong, and we're going to look at that in just a second, just stop and think about it. Is the, is the non-evangelical point of view, let's just put it that way for the sake of brevity, is the non-evangelical point of view really good news? Good news, Elliot. You don't have to be circumcised or keep the ceremonial laws to be justified. But you do have to be a good person and keep the Ten Commandments. Good news, everyone. God's going to judge this world, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll pass. If you don't, you won't. Good news, everyone. Right? Good news, everyone. I mean, all you have to do is not be angry and not lust with your eyes and not just be kind to everyone and be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect, and you'll be okay. But you don't have to keep the Sabbath. Dale, isn't that good news? <laughs> You see how absurd it is. It's not good news. It's only good news when we are not justified by works at all. And when we understand the works of the law as being total, what the law actually requires, which is not just ceremonial things. And doesn't the unevangelical point of view on this miss the whole point also? The whole point that salvation is not a that salvation is supposed to be of God and not of man? lest any man should boast, right? Isn't that the point of the gospel? That salvation is of God, that when we finally make it to heaven and are saved, everybody knows, why are you here? Because of God's amazing grace and his amazing power and his mighty salvation and not because of anything that I have done. Glory to God. Amen. That's the point. Lest any man, as Paul says, not of works in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, lest any man should boast. Well, this other interpretation completely misses the point by saying it's just the kind of works that's the problem. That's the problem. But ultimately, in this other point of view, salvation isn't the work of God, it's your own work. If you're saved, it's because you did it. You kept the moral commandments and were good and were better than other people. And you can boast. And heaven is about you saying, why are you here? I'm here because I did it. And he did it. And this is the point. And furthermore, isn't this other interpretation that limits it to the ceremonial law but still says we have to be good, isn't that simply what Jews were saying anyway? And what so many other religions in this world say already? That in order to be right with God, you have to be a good person. Don't be confused and think that Jews in the first century thought that you just had to keep some ceremonial stuff and you were right with God. The Jews themselves, the Pharisees themselves, were critical of people just doing the rituals without doing it from the heart and without being moral and good. The Pharisees themselves says, come on guys, it's not just, you can't just trust in being circumcised and keeping the Sabbath. You have to actually be righteous and good. And so, how is that view of Roman Catholicism or Mormonism, the new perspective, any different than the Jew that Jesus and the Apostles were confronting in their day? And so I submit, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see the falsehood of that view. But besides these general considerations, look at the exegesis, look at the scripture themselves. Now you can go to the book of Romans and you can see this very clearly. The book of Romans also explains what the works of the law is. But let's just stay within Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10. This is another place where Paul uses the phrase, the works of the law. 
He says in Galatians 3 verse 10, that as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. See, in Galatians 2.16 he says, no one is going to be justified by the works of the law. That's the same as saying, if you try to do it by the works of the law, you're under a curse. You're going to get punished. You're not going to pass. Why is that? Because it is written, he backs this up with this verse, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to conform. Now there's two things to be said about this quotation. The first thing to be said about this quotation is this quotation is from Deuteronomy 27, which is a section of the law that is entirely moral. That is that that chapter is all about don't be a bad person or else you're going to get punished. And if you are not totally following this, you're going to be cursed. So Paul quotes right out of the moral section of the law when he's referring to the works of the law. And the second thing to point out about this is that this verse draws our attention to the fact that the works of the law is all the things that are written in the book of the law. And the simple question to ask is, what exactly is written in the law? What are all the things written in the book of the law? If I were to ask the question, what is the things that the law requires? Could I answer honestly before God and people that the law requires me to only do ceremonial and ceremonial rituals? I'd be a liar and I'd be totally irreverent towards the law. I'd be treating the law uh, violently and not giving honor to the law and to God. If I were to tell you that all the things that were written in the book of the law is ceremonial rituals. And brothers and sisters, when we hear the word law, and when Paul heard the word law, and when he wrote the word law, he was thinking the law as it is from Mount Sinai, which includes the Ten Commandments and all other moral aspects, including love God and love your neighbor, as well as the ceremonial things. It's all to be obeyed if you're going to obey the law. That's the point of this quotation. You're cursed if you don't do all the things that are written. And it's all there for you to see if you want to flip back to Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Ask yourself, what's written in the law? Go read it for yourself and see if it's just ceremonial. <laughs> so the law is a total thing, and it's this total, it's this totality that we have to obey that is the reason why we cannot be justified by doing it. Because none of us do it totally, right? So you might be able to point to a commandment too, where you can say, I think I do that. But you'll not be able to point to the law and all that is written and say, I am obedient. Can anyone here raise their hand before God and man and say that I do all the things that are written in the law? There's not one of us. Don't try to defend yourself and justify yourself unless you can prove that you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And you love your neighbor in the same way that you care about yourself. Right? You should be honest before God and accept the, the truth and the verdict that he says there is no one righteous no one. The law is the rule of righteousness, and if you don't meet that, that standard, you are not, therefore, righteous. I just want to add this, too, that I think for most people, when they think about being righteous or being good, they, they usually only think about what they don't do. I just want to ask you, when you think about righteousness, do you only think about not doing certain things? I think that's how most people think. Being a good person equals not doing certain things. And there's probably about five or six big things they can do. But according to the law, being a good person or being righteous is not just not doing certain things, it's actually doing the good that is found in the law. It's actually loving your neighbor and loving God. Do you actually have that positive quality of perfect love? If you don't, then you're... The whole world is guilty before God. The law shows us that we are all bad and unrighteous and have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And make no mistake about it, the law also threatens us with punishment. 
And Jesus warned us that if we are not found righteous, we will be punished for all of eternity. All other religions in this world attempt this method that Paul says does not work. Paul gives us two methods of justification in 2.16. And all the other religions in the world attempt the method of the works of the law. They seek to be righteous before God by what they do and trying to be good before him through their own works. Paul says that will not work because we have to do it all, and we don't. There's still the need of justification and good news. And this is where we come to the last point this morning in verse uh, 16. The major phrase here to look at besides justification and the works of the law is this phrase through faith in Jesus Christ. How are we justified? Paul tells us how will we be saved and how will we live and not die? And the answer is resounding. Through faith and faith only in Jesus Christ. Paul says we Jews Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be justified through faith in Christ and not through the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one is going to be justified. Paul shows us his reasoning process here. Notice that this text does not say, ask Jesus into your heart. Notice it does not say, say the sinner's prayer. Notice it does not say, make Jesus the Lord of your life. It does not say, accept Jesus into your life. It says, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We Christians need to drop all of that lingo. It's not helpful at all. It confuses the <coughs> It doesn't say Abraham was justified by asking Jesus into his heart, right? It doesn't say Abraham made Jesus the Lord of his life. And he was counted up to him for righteousness. You know how confusing that is? All of those phrases, ask Jesus into your life, accept Jesus into your heart, they can all be confused into a legalism and a works-based kind of thing. I know because I grew up hearing those things. I thought, accept Jesus into my heart means, I don't know what that meant really. It's kind of just me and Jesus living life together now. It wasn't a sense of me trusting in Jesus or believing in him. Abraham was, he believed God and it counted unto him for righteousness. We cannot improve this word believe. You cannot improve upon it, it will ruin our message. So I encourage you to evaluate your own conversion story. If you think, well, I think I became a Christian when I prayed a prayer, or I think I became a Christian when I accepted Jesus in my heart, you need to think more deeply about it and say, when did you believe in Jesus? When did you truly put your trust in Christ for your justification? When did you come to the place where you realize, I am not a good person, and I'm not going to pass the judgment day. I need to take refuge in Christ Jesus. I need to trust him and believe what he's done. That's the question to ask. And I encourage you all, when you share your testimony, or you share your story with others, use the biblical language of faith. Because this is ground zero. Faith and faith only in Christ. Paul candidly reveals his mind and shows us his reason for believing. Look carefully at verse 16, right in the middle. He says, even we have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. This now gives you his, his reasoning process. I put my faith in Jesus with the understanding that no one is justified by the works of the law. I put my faith in Jesus with the understanding that by putting my faith in Jesus, I would be justified. You see that? It's not, I believe in Jesus, but I don't have a clue about justification. It's, I'm putting my faith in Jesus knowing that this is the way of justification. I'm, I'm doing what God has said I should do, which is to put my trust in Christ to be saved. Why faith? Because faith is not works. It is trusting God in what he promises and what he will do. And God is delighted when we believe the truth, and he will not disappoint anyone who rests in him, and who, uh, who re takes refuge in him, is hoping in him, he will not disappoint, because he is the God who comes through, and he is the God of truth. Therefore, we see that not everyone who just simply believes in Jesus is saved, because not everyone who believes in Jesus understands justification, understands Jesus, and therefore they aren't really believing in Jesus. 
because they're not really trusting in him for their salvation. They're just believing in Jesus and defining that whatever way they like to define that. As Calvin says, there is no, where there is no knowledge, there is no faith, because faith is intimately connected with knowledge. You're putting your, you're believing, you're becoming convinced of and persuaded of an object of truth. And if you don't know that object of truth, how can you believe in it? So where there is no knowledge, there is no faith, because there is no true object of faith. You must believe in Christ as a sinner, just as many believe in Christ because it's their culture. Oh yeah, of course I believe in Christ. Everyone believes in Christ. It's my culture. It's what I grew up in. My family believes in Christ. You must believe in Christ with understanding, not to combine him with your own works. A little bit of my goodness and a little bit of Jesus, and we're going to be okay. But I realize that no one will be justified by the works of the law, and I have no goodness. And as a sinner, with nothing to offer, I put my trust in the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Have you believed, brothers and sisters, have you believed like Peter and Paul did? Because you might think, wow, Peter and Paul, they are so amazing. But I'll tell you, these guys, Peter and Paul, they believed in Jesus to be justified by faith in Jesus. They believed in Jesus as sinners with nothing to offer. Not even their ministries or anything like that. Do you believe as they do? And if you truly believe in Christ, you are justified, the Bible says, you are righteous in the sight of God. And you will not be punished and you pass the judgment of God because your sins are taken away by Jesus Christ. In closing this morning, turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans is, without a doubt, the greatest statement of justification that can be found in this world. I'd just like to look at Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Starting in verse 1. What shall we say that Abraham our father, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. There's the point, right? That was well before the law, by the way but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, as grace, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of, on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And in closing here, it might seem strange to read here that God justifies the wicked and the ungodly. When we, you remember we read in Proverbs 17 that he who justifies the wicked is an abomination. And here we are as Christians saying, everyone is unrighteous, but yet you as a sinner can approach judgment day and hear a positive verdict from God. Now either God's lost his mind, or his eyes, or he's become a bad God and a bad judge, or something radical and miraculous has taken place to enable God to justify people who are guilty. Right? So either I approach as a sinner and God says, oh, we'll just forget about the whole justice thing, come on in. Or, even though I'm a sinner, God declares me to be just because I am just in some miraculous and mysterious way. And of course, we know what that way is, don't we? The mysterious cross of Christ, where our sins were put upon our Savior. And He amazingly and miraculously bared our sins away by taking the punishment that we deserve for our sins. By becoming sin, by being treated as an unrighteous one, even though he was the only righteous one, by substituting in our place, taking yours and my sin and bearing it away. And whoever believes in him and trusts in him, your sins are truly taken away through the sacrifice of Jesus. And even though you look like a sinner and you act like a sinner, because of your faith in Christ, God declares you to be righteous. And it's not a lie, and it's not a trick. It's true righteousness that you have because Jesus 
actually die for your sins. Isn't that an amazing thing? And David says, if that is your case, happy are you, rejoice and be glad. There is no condemnation for you. You are saved, and you will live with God forever. This is the biblical doctrine of justification through faith without works. We don't look to ourselves, but to Christ alone, and we don't get any of the glory. God gets all of the glory. This is the only gateway into the sublime knowledge of God. If you don't know this mystery of justification, you don't know God because you don't know him as a righteous judge and as a God of amazing love. He give his son's life for sinners. The only other alternative is that you know of a God who just judges the world. There's no atonement. There's no substitute. And he lowers the standards if you're looking. That's not the God of People wonder, what will heaven be like? What will heaven be like? And I think Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12 gives us an idea. Heaven will be filled with the justified who know that they are sinners and who know the grace of the living God and who know that they stand in the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. They know where they should be and they know why they're there. And heaven will be eternally resounding with the praises of the justified to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the mystery of justification. Thank you for the gospel that gives hope for us unrighteous sinners. Thank you for the truth that sets us free. And thank you that you, in your great love for us, have enabled us to have eternal life and to know you as you truly May we never forget this day. May we trust in you to the end. And Lord, may you receive all the glory through us through your Son. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.